The cock jokes are dead. Yes. Long live hard eight inches of wiener and you're right back in got you motherfuckers oh, the only reason we did it this way okay, don't you see okay okay i literally had a different thing so we have that we have cock uh-huh. we have cack we have cack? the yeah cast and curious as well oh, yeah the cast and curious <laughs> is cack yeah and i thought that uh the acronym for this show anderson's is as a s or as as but so it's really as we're uh we're good podcasters we're good at saying. podcasting um yeah we cast pods so hard that they're way over there and you don't even listen to them that's wow wow that's good yeah. stuff i'm michael wow. swaim i'm abe epperson and we are anders sons one of i'm gonna guess that i'm the son of Wes Anderson, because I know Abe wants to be the son of PT. Well, it depends on if you think that. Uh, does Wes Anderson hate his father? Like, <laughs> or, I don't, or his you son? Know, like, <laughs> no, I mean just looking at his catalog of movies, mm-hmm. I wonder if that's true. But um, sure, yeah, you take that one. Does PT oh. Anderson hate frogs? He killed so many. Um, that's true. But we're long far from there because what we're doing here is we're doing a deep dive podcast series uh, on the works of PT and Wes Anderson in chronological order. And uh, first up is a PT, PT Anderson's uh, film pr- debut on the Why Am I Singing It? Debut on that because I look. I want to acknowledge Coffee and Cigarettes, which was where he really made a splash. Uh, I believe it's Sundance, but I think we settled on it wasn't feature length. And uh, mm-hmm. so Heart Eight is where we landed. Plus the dick joke, you know. So, um, um, yeah, yeah, PT's, <laughs> yeah you nailed it. PT's directorial debut, Heart Eight. And <clears throat> um, yeah. yeah, and then this is kind of a natural like extension of that short film. Like basically you made a short. I mean, we're getting into it, but he made a short, then was asked to, Hey, feel it. you can, you should make this into a feature of some kind. And that's what he did. Um, so and, they are yeah, kind of similar. That's true. One's an extension to the other. He was just going to call the movie Sydney, uh, which is the name of the main character played by Philip Baker Hall, who, uh, you'll see in many PTN or at least one more that I can think of. And, um, yeah. and, uh, he was bookman on Seinfeld and he does a good job, but now we're getting into it. So we should get into mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So we should do everything that one should do before we get into it. So, um, by that, I mean, let's explain the format real quick. And I gotta say, I'm, I'm real excited. I feel equally excited to like crack this format open again i think uh as i am about the topic at hand so we are returning to the coen brothers brothers uh layout meaning it's abe and myself of course that's the magic sauce because we have same brain and we are digesting these films through three spectra, my friends. Three spectra, you may remember. Uh, they are diegesis, pedagogy, or gaji, and howdy do that. Um, so howdy we'll be doing do that. that. And yeah. Abe, just because it's been a while, I wanted to know. That's I. So I just wanted to throw out the way I interpret that and make sure that we're still same brain. Mm-hmm. Unlike uh, under the dome or. Uh, 
it. I forget the analogous segment in Vana Guys, but oh, you know right, there, right. there's a long tradition going back of um, one-upsmanship has the speed run of like uh, whipping through the synopsis real quick. Uh, in yeah. this case, we're gonna skin the cat a little bit differently. We will mm-hmm. we will double team the synopsis because that's diegesis. If you're unfamiliar, I don't <laughs> to depretentiousize this a little bit. Just means mm-hmm. um the stuff that actually comprises the sensorial experience of the film. So it's most yeah. usually used to refer like to score. Plot. Yeah, or, or yeah, or like score is diegetic if it's playing from a car radio in the scene. It's non-diegetic <clears throat> if it's a soundtrack. Um, so That's by great. diegesis, we mean like the synopsis, but also we're not going to rush through it. We'll stop and dig in and quote lines, and that's sort of the meat. We do meat first with uh, with this style mm-hmm. of, of analysis. Then we go into pedagogy, which is we get a little more philosophical and get loose with it, and we're like, hey, what do you think about the theme of blah, blah, blah? Um, then how do you do that is sort of trivia behind the scenes and um, wrap up, right? Yeah, basically. Okay, uh, great. Same brain. I just want to make sure that we didn't like rush through the synopsis by force of habit and then realize, oh, wait, that's not what we do. I definitely uh, I definitely push back when we switch to Kings of King was like, man, the synopsis. I can't see how this is interesting, but viewers, that's on us. <laughs> you know, like we'll make we'll try to figure out a way to, you know, we're going to like itemize this in a way that uh we'll try to talk about not like the philosophy behind it but at least like oh notice this dear reader kind of stuff because right I think if there's that's, foreshadowing color theory any kind of deep reading stuff i mean I that's what you pay us the big bucks for pointing I that think shit there's out value in being able to talk confidently about these films and part of that is being able to react uh to what you're watching while you're watching it so it's kind of like a good you know, prep for if you're going to watch the movie uh, or if you've just watched the movie. Obviously, many of you can't j- do that. You, you you can't go back in time. Uh, you can pause right now. You have control. I mean, but also, true. so spoilers in, li- in case you wanted to jump ahead, the next one will be Bottle Rocket, Wes Anderson's debut released mm-hmm. the same year in a later <clears throat> month. So, yeah. Uh, okay, let's dive into it. I have no idea what sound effect we're throwing to, but it's time for Diegesis. Maybe there is no sound effect. Who knows? Maybe there was just an awkward pause right there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Abe, I've been talking too much because I sort of laid out the format. So why don't you start and I'll jump in whenever the spear moves me. Um, what's Heart yeah, 8 sure. concern itself with? Uh, you know, it's mainly takes place in hotel rooms, casino floors and parking lots. Mm-hmm. And let's just start with the first shot, you know. Um, our character, Sid, Sidney, Philip Baker Hall. Uh, we start on his kind of like back and what he's looking at is a diner where John, uh, who's played by John C. Riley, uh, mm-hmm. is sitting on the ground outside that the diner kind of looks like he's in the dumpies. He walks up to him. All right, and offers I'm him- sorry. Now yep. I remember why <laughs> Coen brothers, brothers episodes are long, but You've bypassed several things that I want to bring up before we bypass them. Sure, sure. It, it opens with full credits over black. Okay. Like very long substantive credits. Really? I thought, no? Am I just, maybe it my just modern sensibility like, is my attention span's man. too short. Um, it does feel like it's leading with the cast, which it should rightly do because it's amazing that he got this cast at this stage of his career. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think that we immediately learn about uh, Anderson from this movie, how much he loves actors and like cares about acting. Uh, The first shot is technically a big blank truck pulling away that reveals the diner, which I only mention because it's so punch drunk lovey and it's so PT Anderson. And he already has his toolkit. Like he already has a bag of tricks. He likes that we'll see. And I should mention like this entire conversation is played on the back of Philip Baker Hall. So it's, He's doing this kind of thing, which we see, I'm going to point out many times how he uses this editorial strategy. I guess it's not really editorial strategy as much as just the conceit by the filmmaker to say, I'm not going to look at this person's face for their for their lines for this scene. Why? I think it, it plays better to be focused on the person who the scene's about or something like that. You know, he just has a way about him. This is his process. Is there a We're film gonna... school answer as to why? Like, is there a you who has gone through film school? Like, is there uh, when one plays important lines off screen, it has this effect on the audience. You know what I mean? Is um, that like a scientifically known thing? I think that there's people who have kind of, um, in the same way that people will suggest, I often suggest that Spielberg shoots from a low angle because he wants us from the point of view of kids. Like that is a very school, go- school uh, answer. But like, to me, that's a lot of this stuff is highly subjective. Uh, when it comes mm. to film, like, uh, an art school, uh, you're not really going to have an answer to most of that. I don't see anything because it's not as clear as, for example, the Spielberg example. This is more of just taste. It's just he thinks it is more poetic. He thinks it's more whatever word he uses for it. But it is definitely his sensibility. And we pick up on it because he establishes the tone, the music, all these things working in accord uh, with his vision. So really, no, there is no answer other than I think a film school would like not teach that as much as regarded as just his sentiment. It's just interesting to me that in that case, we often consider stuff like that to be style over substance or we don't like that. Um, And yet, for some reason, it doesn't. I got to admit it doesn't ping my radar or offend my sensibilities the way like a Guy Ritchie affectation will. It does feel yeah, more earned. It does feel I, okay. Uh, I don't know why. <laughs> I think it's I think it's because it comes from specifically the place of what you're looking at on screen. I think that there's something about um, the eye of Paul Thomas Anderson where he, it's like he considers himself this kind of fly on the wall Almost documentary style, but in a way that he's examining the events as if like, okay, so what if there's this conversation, but I just like, no one could see me, but I just get to watch someone break down, you know, Mm -hmm. like they're starting to cry and I'm just watching and it's not awkward. Like there's this um, full frontal aspect of Paul Thomas Anderson that feels and kind of are necessitated by his movies because he puts character front and center in that way. Uh, All of his movies are extremely private moments of, yeah, like realistically well-rounded people. Right. So I think that even if it's subjectively tied to the style, I still think that the style feels earned in our brain, or at least it does to me, because it seems cadent. It seems like exactly the way that it was supposed to be, as opposed to something that would be like, oh, you were doing that because that looked cool and this is a good section for it. I also think there's something to the idea that it's diegetic to life, so to speak, meaning like when I have a conversation with someone, sometimes I look away and still hear them. Like that's an organic experience we've all have under our belts. Whereas- (laughs) 
uh, Guy Ritchie being like, I tilt the camera diagonally and that imitates the plane taking off that I cut to. You're mm-hmm. like, yeah, I never do that like with my eyes or my head. You know yeah. what I mean? I think it's a not lot an of, organic maneuver. I think in both cases of Anders Anderson's, uh, I think in both cases, uh, they're more of artists that want to try to imitate life as opposed to imitating an experience that is entertaining. So that's why we kind of chose them also is that they're both seen as our tours. And this mm-hmm. is the particular Arturness that is Paul Thomas. Anderson. Yeah. For people asking why Paul W S Anderson is not represented. It's yeah, because he's not it. an auteur. Okay. That's the answer. <laughs> he is though. That's. I oh, would, so I should we slip him in? On it. You want to no. cover the fucking resident evil movies? I don't. You want me to be honest? Uh, the reason I don't think we should cover him is because he's, uh, uh, to, to kind of take the wool away from your people's eyes. He's kind of a monster. Uh, he's gotten several like stunt people hurt. Uh, he has to film in not America anymore because he can't really because the, the oh, tax. I didn't know that. Yeah, because the tax and insu- I believe it's because the insurance. But for some reason, it's just can't too get expensive. That insurance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe it's not that he can't. It's just way too expensive mm-hmm. because he's got he's a liability and rightfully so. He does insane kind of things um i do love my mortal combats you know that's the only but one anyway. that would be interesting to me so anyway yeah. speaking <laughs> of dangerous maneuvers uh and opening yourself up to liability yeah sid talks to john and you can nice. tell john's in the dumpies as you said and sid's just like you want a cup of coffee you want a cigarette and he goes like, what? Who the fuck are you? And he's like, mm. I'm a man who's offering you a cup of coffee. Buy you a cup of coffee. Give you a cigarette. What do you, mm. you know, what the fuck? Yeah. And it cuts inside and they're chatting. And that's like all we get. It's very cryptic. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, he asks him, well, the line I wrote down, because I did like it. It's, I'll tell you something uh, PT has is much like Barnum. Um <laughs> He knows how to engage. You're right away so engaged because it's it's human stakes. It's not like there's a giant alien ship in the sky, but you there's immediately a mystery. Why is this guy so nice to this guy? <laughs> that's yeah. that's what you're thinking immediately. It's so engaging. Like what's their deals? Yeah, what's their deals? And uh he goes, It feels like a play in some ways. Um what were you playing? Blackjack. Oh, do you count cards? What? Do you count cards? Are you able to count cards? No. In my experience, if you don't know how to count cards, you ought to stay away from blackjack. Thanks, Mr. Helpful. John, look at me. John, we're sitting here. We're talking. I gave you coffee and a cigarette. John, look at me. Never ignore a man's courtesy. And you're like, okay, Mm. this is going to be like some playwriting shit. I see. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, that line's going to come up at least symbolically later. I want people to remember that. Or like just like book, like bookmark it never ignore um, man's courtesy yeah yeah um yeah and john mentions that he needs six thousand dollars for his mother's funeral and he's kind of weird about it he's but i mean you kind of get the sense that john is maybe not so smart or just the idea is that he's kind of bumbling just like a bumblefuck yeah yeah because <laughs> when he has that when we first discuss when he starts mentioning his mother's funeral he kind of a like talks himself out of talking about it. And it's like a very strange thing. Like he offers the information because he feels pressure from Philip Baker Hall from Sid saying like, Hey, don't, you know, disrespect me. Uh, and so he's like, Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, sir. Kind of thing. But also he's like, 
uh, yeah, it was for my mother's funeral. And then he goes in this weird kind of like silence that it's like he doesn't want to tell this guy more, even though it wouldn't cost him much. Um, so after telling him that, uh, he then, uh, Sid then tells him that John should come to Vegas with him and he'll give him $50 if he just listens to him, basically. Uh, John at first thinks it's a sex thing, but convinces himself it's not by warning Sydney that he'll fuck him up with three types of karate. I'll fuck you up if you fuck with me, okay? I know three types of karate. Jiu-jitsu, Aikido, and regular karate. <laughs> <laughs> regular karate, yeah. Uh, which is, you know, classic John C. Riley, really. I mean, it feels straight out of, like, this guy is stepbrothers a little gritty, bit. But it's pretty dirty New York playwriting kind of shit. I know it's Vegas, but it does <laughs> feel like True West, uh, a play... Or yeah. it feels very, uh, or what's the fucking, you know, I'm walking here, Midnight Cowboy. It's right. so gritty. Like, yes, he's a charming bumblefuck, but he does drop the F word, by which I mean the one yeah. that you'd think I would be less very likely American. to say. Yeah. yeah. I'm not some boy hooker. I'll fuck you up with you fuck with me. But then he does the karate yeah. thing and you're like, oh, Steve Brule's here. It's great. The, uh, <laughs> we see this tendency, I think, Paul Thomas Anderson cast John C. Riley for with this like, reason. Simplic- for, in, like, he wants to present him as fairly simple, or at least like not knowing exactly what's going on at all times. So he's very defensive in a kind of funny way, um, which is what John C. Riley's brand is. Think of his movies. Yeah. Um, he's kind of this insecure buffoon. And then it ends with a push in, yeah, Mr. Cellophane at all. It pushes in on their cup of coffees, which are perfectly symmetrical, as if to say, like, and it, and here comes a tale, and it all began with a cup of coffee, and or, and, or, there's two men, two cups of coffee, like two similar things. I don't know. I just really liked it. I thought it, it worked a, very well. I and believe it it's says, an homage to the short. Oh, because yeah, it's a shot of coffee and cigarettes. I see. Well, he did the exact same shot, shot at the sa- exact same diner uh, in coffee and cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes so sense. when he went and basically refilmed everything, he included that shot uh, just be- as an homage. But obviously, when you think of the short, it dollies in and then goes instead of hard eight coffee and cigarettes. Gotcha. Um, Out of the title card, we're on the road to Vegas. The mountains in the background have snow on them, which is crazy to me. I miss that. (laughs) That's how long ago this was. Philip Baker Hall was 65 when he shot this. I believe he's bones now. (laughs) So that's how long (laughs) ago this was. (laughs) Um, That's terrible. And uh, John C. Riley switches. He starts in the back seat, switches to the front seat. It's cute. You see him slowly basically let down his guard, right? Um, He wants to bum a cigarette. Everyone's smokes so much in this movie mm-hmm. um, but he won't light the cigarette because he doesn't use matches and he tells a story that will come up later which is man the cutaway the it's very fam like family guy honestly he starts to, yeah he's like this time matches exploded in my pocket and it just cuts to a very wes anderson flat postcard shot of him in line and on the cut his pocket explodes in fire and he, go, he kind of swats it and goes, oh, geez, elf. You know, like and what's amazing just, is he looks it. at the people around him shrugging like, can you believe this shit? And I love the direction. No one noticed. <laughs> like, no one notices yeah. or cares. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that's there's a playful aspect to Paul Thomas Anderson. I think he thinks that kind of stuff is funny. Yeah. Where he's just like, oh, incongruent um, 
social interaction. You know, like people, you think it's a big deal. He's going asking that way. Jokes are just incongruent elements placed together artistically. He's right up our our alley because there's a nihilistic bent to him. But anyway, Mm -hmm. maybe this is for the later section. But yeah. So he says, what are you going to do? You know, I do think this is a resonant line for this film and nihilistic films in general is like, okay, so someone who I think doesn't isn't willing to grapple with nihilism or doesn't understand what nihilism is really about would take this to be meaningless gibberish. But when you really understand it, this is at the heart of nihilism and it's freeing, not sad. Um, what are you going to do? You know, this happens, that happens, shit happens. You just deal with it. I'm like, yeah, that is, it can be underwhelming to think that is the only truth. That is the meaning of life. In my opinion, that's all there is. Kind and of, uh, you wish there was more yeah. maybe, but there's something profound about that being all there is. It's just a fire hydrant of experience. <laughs> yeah, it's a natural apathy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he says, if you play $50 right, he starts coaching him and basically says, if you play $50 right, long enough and hard enough, you can get a bed and a meal. And he's like, well, okay, I'll do. You know, he keeps teasing him along one step at a time, one step at a time. So mm-hmm. he's like, mm-hmm. when we get there, I'm going to teach you some kind of scam and you're going to get a bed and a meal. And he goes, okay, I'm willing to do that. Um, makes him go to the bathroom, shave, get cleaned up. Yep. Um, I, this part really had me thinking about how, and it's very Vince Gilligan. I think understands this fundamentally. There's something very Gilligan as in just, you know, so that people know, Oh yeah. uh, Breaking bad, uh, of breaking bad and better call Saul, but he created breaking bad. Yeah. And better call Saul, especially with Mike Ehrmantraut. There's something thrilling about just watching someone silently do a process. If you see all the steps in detail, you know, like someone using a shaving kit and really cutting to all the inserts and like, Mm -hmm. and you'll see Mike Ehrmantraut, especially if you don't know the end result of the process, like Mike Ehrmantraut setting up a trap or a stakeout on Breaking Bad and he just does it. And you're like, what am I looking at here? What am I looking at here? Oh, he's staking out that guy we saw from earlier. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, There's something really great about that. And I got this out of of it's almost many oceans 11 you know of uh him explaining the scam so that is all to say i don't understand how the scam works and interesting backstory to the movie pta has acknowledged that this comes from real life he ran this scam several times oh you know when he was staying in vegas to like pay for his meals and board uh do you understand how the scam works abe (laughs) Uh, kind of basically, it's kind of, I guess, understanding um, what a rate card is, um, which is that it's a rate, a casino rate refers to like a discounted cost of a hotel room that is usually attached to a casino, right? So mm-hmm. if you're spending a lot of money, it's not that he's getting money, it's that he's getting comped, essentially, Right. So because he's losing so much money, according to the card, because he has, quote unquote, receipts for a large loss, they're essentially giving him a huge um, discount on a hotel room. I understand the goal is to look like you're losing so much that they feel bad and they comp you. But what I don't understand is he gets the rate card. He tells the floor man. Hey, I need this rate card because I'm a compulsive gambler and I need to track mm-hmm. how much I'm going to lose as if to imply I'm going to lose a lot tonight. Watch me, you know, yeah. then he goes and gets $150 worth of chips, 
Then he goes and plays 50. He actually plays 20, but I'm going to say 50 20, to keep it yeah, simple. Yeah, it's important that he he spends. So every time it looks mm-hmm. like he's investing more money when the reality is he's investing the same money, right? Well, he invests 20. Then he takes the 130 back to the floor man and gets a $100 bill. Mm-hmm. Then he gets the $100 bill exchanged for chips. And I don't understand. But he comes out with more chips than he had before. That's the link that I don't understand. He comes out with like two hundred dollars right. worth of chips. And so the so in chips because chips aren't dollars. You can't use them anywhere but the casino. Oh, they right? comped him some chips because because chip, he's losing. I don't know if that's the policy. Maybe it is, but the concept is that like he's accruing debt. He's spending right. money he doesn't he hasn't paid for yet. Um. They're just like, yeah, 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 we'll kind of front you a little bit for the next one. You, we know you're good for it. That's the whole idea between behind a rate card is they're, tra- they're trying to get people to, uh, I believe, just like spend more money. So they'll they'll be like, we'll invest in you. Kind of like how like an investor, someone who believes in you, buddy. But the reality is, no, they're just trying to hold a receipt of get like, you deeper in the oh, hole. yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can get more mu- you can get more chips if you um if you just use this card in our system. And oh, our and system. then you can do an and easy payment can, plan and pay us yep. eighty thousand dollars over the course yeah. of the next ten years. You're fucked. Which yeah, is why they, which is also why they can't do this trick more than once. He just needs to look like a fool once to the pit boss. But then he can the never casino. come back to this casino. But if basically. he does it again and again and again, yeah. they're going to be like, no, dude, you're just trying to stay at the hotel. Clearly. Yeah. I see. Okay, so good news casinos who have probably figured this loophole out and fixed it by now because this was so long ago. I'm too dumb to do the scam, but I did notice about the film that every time money changes hands, they smash from a wide to an ultra close, and it's the same with handshakes. Mm -hmm. And I like the conflation of like these, both of these things are agreements, you know, and Mm -hmm. represent like a contractual agreement. And the as I think mm. this tracks, I, I was keeping a lookout for it the whole time. The only time they don't do that is when Jimmy and Sid Sydney shake hands. Mm-hmm. It's in a wide because mm. it's because yeah. it's not a real connection. It's not they don't real. really value each other. Yeah, yeah, and I, I like yeah, that. I don't. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if it means that it's not real, but it's definitely like it's not, false, and everyone knows it. And there's yeah. like. No one's trying. He says, Jimmy thinks you don't like him. Yeah, I don't. They're not even trying to (laughs) scam each other. They're just like, I don't like you. I don't like you. But this is the thing that we do. Yeah. Um, Yeah, for sure. John puts on his Velcro shoes and they chat in the hotel room. Uh, John's amazed that they made the money. Sydney says, I hope you can see that my reasons for doing this aren't selfish. I do this only because I hope that you would do the same for me. And he says, I would. So they decide to try and get the 6K, work together to get the 6K to bury his mother. And he says, it's always good to meet a new friend, uh, Sid says to John. John puts on his Velcro shoes. I don't know why I'm so into that, but I love it. I think it's Mm -hmm. perfect for John C. Riley to wear Velcro shoes in this. Mm -hmm. And uh, we cut. And uh, time becomes a little hazy because at this point, at some point, time is ellipsed because they start saying things like we're old friends and the mother thing is referenced as if it was like resolved long ago. So well, I'm not sure where Sydney the time is. this a time go, jump? There's there's a time jump. So and, and it's on uh, it's a super on screen. Oh. Uh, like so as soon as he basically puts on his Velcro shoes and leaves, we see a sequence where Sydney basically 
Yeah, he's no. He tells him he's going to gamble, right? And, yeah. Uh, he's play then Kino. it's literally said. It cuts to black and says we, and it says two years later, Reno, California, or Reno. Nevada. Oh, I missed the Chiron because yeah, I was yeah. typing notes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So and then, then the piano they're player at a plays, casino yeah. bar, and it's like, oh, they're old hats at this. Like they do this all the time now. I want to put and their buddies. Just a pause on that. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to go back because you were on a roll, but I wanted to go back and please mention just uh, like film historical kind of cueing the audience into like the lexicon that uh that he's that Paul Thomas Anderson is using here is that when he's describing like uh you know okay you you cash in you take another hundred dollars and you add it to the rate card essentially you know you compound your losses he explained make sure that the pit boss sees that you're losing your money so that he does everything seems above board. You know when he's doing this explanation he's He's doing it in little bits and then we see the person do the stuff and then he add, and then we see kind of not narration because he's usually in the shot. Uh, this is a very like if you go back and you see like casino films or heist films like The Sting, uh, Ocean's Eleven paid homage to this with probably the most recent example that everyone kind of identifies. But if you go back, this is like a thing that uh, most movies of this ilk would do. It's like it's something about like people knowing exactly how to scam that created this kind of trope in filmmaking where it's like you see them explain the thing as they do the thing. It's the visual uh, metaphor for I love it when a plan comes together. It's that feeling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so if you think of Ocean's Eleven where they're like explaining the the crime, but then you're like, oh, is this them prepping for the crime? Or is it, oh, they're actually like, doing no, the crime. No, we're already in it, motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, Soderbergh does this interesting thing where he also plants like, oh, you thought it was the real one because they got caught by the cops or whatever. You know, no, no, actually that was, that was I'm fi- I was faking you out because of your assumption that it was real kind of stuff. But in this case, he's just playing it straight. It's kind of gives an air of authenticity to Sid. You feel like he knows this world is in control of this world is all I wanted to say. And tells the truth. Usually right. you feel like he tells the truth. So let's cut back to two years later. uh, And now, now this is about 20 minutes into the movie. Yeah. It's only a 90 minute movie, by the way. So you can have like scope on this. Um, At, the bar they meet well we should talk okay i'll save that for how do you do that at the bar they meet clem and jimmy clementine and jimmy um played by gwyneth paltrow and samuel l jackson respectively again just all-star cast for your first film feature film Mm -hmm. um sid's playing kino and crossword puzzle and smoking and drinking all at the same time which i just gotta say a man after my own heart like so many stimuli at once (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I love that he's like, I may as well do a crossword puzzle. Fuck it. And in fact, when Jimmy asks him why he plays small games like Kino, because that's like an old man thing to do. Sydney says just passing time, Uh, which I thought was a nice little that's a total Sydney. Because we get the impression. And of course, it's confirmed by the end that what he's really doing is hanging out with John, you know, so he's just like enjoying life or whatever. Uh, his mm-hmm. version of it, which is he likes chilling at the casino. And mm-hmm. we see that he also likes being nice to the servers. He's nice to Gwyneth Paltrow, who's Clementine and is a server. He remembered her name without looking at her name tag. He tips her big. they have a conversation about whether or not flirtation is a part of her job. I he, think this is yeah. important for later. He yeah, tells her that- It's key to her whole character right. arc, of course. She, he tells her that she doesn't have to do that with him- um, specifically, but they do discuss kind of the natural catch 22 or like, 
um, hypocrisy that the casino is benefiting from her work of making quote unquote friends with these men who then spend at the casino, but she doesn't see any of that money. So why should like, so what's her incentive? And also that the casino is like, cannot tell her to flirt, but it's expected out of her. Cause she'll, and she'll get better tips. And we find out that she is a prostitute and the, yeah, later if the, yeah, but I just bring it up now because the hypocrisy is talked around at this point of like, yes. and if the casino knew that, she would get fired. Even mm-hmm. though the casino wants her doing that, really, mm-hmm. like they benefit yet again from that. It's an extra mm-hmm. hotel room. It's a guy staying around, spending money in the casino, in and around the local economy. Yeah. So, um, you know, as you'd guess, like <laughs> the wait staff in Las Vegas are exploited in many ways. And he's aware of that and he just treats her nicely. And she calls him captain because she says John follows him around. And uh, I see the way John follows you around like you're his captain. And he says John is a very old friend, which is striking to you, the audience, because they've only known each other two years. Um, Yeah, we ellipse. Yeah. Um, And we also see when Jimmy and John come over, Jimmy John's. Uh, John is clearly into... I hate that slogan. (laughs) Yeah, that's a terrible slogan. John's clearly into Clementine. uh, And so we introduce Jimmy, who kind of introduces himself as a security consultant. You don't get the sense that it's for any casino in general. So you kind of get the feeling he's full of shit. Uh, He offers to buy Sydney's meal, which you can tell that Sydney doesn't like. And he says no. Like any kind but of before that, Sydney asks, "Do you work the parking lot?" Which he'll bring up later. Mm. I gotta say, I just gotta say, yeah, like I wrote note. down as a note, Sydney microaggresses to Jimmy before yeah. Jimmy is an asshole. Like Sydney right. does treat him as less than because he's a black man. I do believe that. You think it's because he's a black man? Uh, that's interesting because it's not really mentioned. In fact, uh, uh, Samuel's character says like you think I'm a loser. I thought that that was an opportunity. I was like in my head when I was watching I was like also this could this could be very easily construed as racist. Like very easily. So it might have been. I don't know what the intention was. Well, I uh, guess but, yeah, just because he says I'm a security consultant. Well, he says and you think I'm dumb and you think yeah, cuz he goes I'm a security consultant and he says Oh, the parking lot? And he goes, no, the casino. And later, spoiler, he'll have a gun to his head and he'll be like I don't work the fucking parking lot, motherfucker. They trust mm. me. I work security in the casino. And I so I like, I think I got very parasite vibes where it's like Jimmy ultimately right. turned on him because he's like, where do you get off just acting even subtly like you're just inherently superior to me? Fuck you, dude. <laughs> you know, yeah, as he holds a gun. To his head, blackmailing him for money. But anyway. That's true. uh, No, I'm not saying Jimmy's a great guy. I'm just saying, well, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get there. We'll get there. If if people haven't seen it and they're actually following the plot through this, I don't want to spoil it. Uh, So Jimmy tells uh, stories and carouses and uh, talks about a guy who died of a heart attack and everyone kept playing craps around him. 
And he's just loud and jovial and boisterous and shit. And you can tell Sid doesn't like it. And he also, um, which is foreshadowing again, mentions that he recognizes Sid. And he, in his own way, seems knowledgeable of the city and like the history of, he's like, oh yeah, I've seen you. You were at this particular casino like 12 years ago. It's pretty impressive, you know, the memory pull. And he's Mm -hmm. like, and you bet $2,000 on cramps on a hard eight and you lost. And he's like- that's right. That was me, which is pretty impressive. And he's like, that was a balls out bet, man. And he goes, no, stupid bet, Um, which I think is supposed to be resonant. I didn't quite connect it, but maybe just his general regret for his past. We'll talk about we'll talk about that more in in pedagogy. But Uh, I want to make a note of Jimmy tells Sydney specifically when he's talking about how he know in this town he's like known he's the guy to call yeah uh, he offers to Sydney in particular he says like if you need anything so even in Jimmy's mind he's like here's Sydney this old guy who comes in and acts like he knows he's very comfortable in his own you know body kind of thing yeah. in terms of like he owns this town Space. he walks around yeah. everything like he's owns it he's called or the just captain. like he's worked here for uh, 50 years he knows and everyone Jimmy yeah. perceives that as a threat of on some level i think they both perceive each other as threats immediately because jimmy specifically goes out of his way to say like i'm the guy in this town so you talk to me which i think is just a note i don't want to get too much into it and i want to talk about it later but just like we have now seen in the film within 30 minutes two different unique versions of courtesy you know Mm. i'm gonna help you that's we're starting to see what this film is about which makes sense because we're 30 minutes into it. people helping people uh yeah so jimmy says something that is uncouth i will give you that jesus we are surrounded by fine pussy here uh to which sydney replies hey 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 jimmy (laughs) i don't ask for my ears but for hers meaning clementine she can hear that across the lounge it puts her in an uncomfortable position. Jimmy says, I doubt hearing she's got a fine pussy puts her in a comfortable position. And he goes, well, okay. And they shake hands and there's no close up and Jimmy and John leave to go gamble. And then there's a long follow shot that is very reminiscent of the opening shot of the film and the closing Mm -hmm. shot of the film, um, of Sydney walking over to the craps table. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's kind of sophisticated Steadicam shot. It shows, sets up the geography, the space. It doesn't really have, this is one thing I will knock Paul Thomas Anderson on. I think it does like it does have some narrative weight in that you do truly need to see Sydney at one point on a casino floor. Uh, and pulled like hypnotically to the craps table because that's yeah. that's symbolic for him. Yeah. But like he looks like he's in control and all that stuff. And because like if we don't see that, it's just a sequence. It's just a movie about people in rooms talking about casinos. So he, you need it. But this scene isn't. Like this is a section that if you were to go by conventional uh, script writing is one of the first things to go. Well, it's that's almost what's crazy, dude. And I didn't want to bring it up till how do you do that? But I guess I feel like we have to because it's so relevant, as you know. But sharing with the audience, the first cut of this was two and a half hours, and this mm-hmm. cut is ninety minutes. Right. There's no way that the two and a half hour cut was justified. You know what I mean? Because the story totally works as it is in 90 yeah, minutes. I mean, maybe there's more story. I don't know. Yeah. I haven't seen I guess it, but it doesn't, to have if additional this was the story same story, if this was all there was, which it feels right. complete, uh, I don't know what the other stuff would be, but haven't seen it. Um, right. Okay. But it is interesting. I always find it fascinating when a writer director who I really admire 
Like the famous one that I I know we talk about a lot, our whole diaspora from Crack talk about is Sixth Sense, you know, the twist not being discovered till the fifth draft or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Even to me, this is a smaller scale version of that. Like P- P- someone like P.T. Anderson thinking the movie should be, well, maybe it could work as 90 minutes. Maybe it could work as two and a half hours. I'm like, how do you not have that shit nailed down to a T before you frame roll frame one? That's crazy to me um, and fascinating. I just think that's really interesting. Right. Uh, and of course, the real answer has a lot to do with dialogue with the studio and all the investors and okay. producers. And yeah. 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 Let's uh, let's. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he yeah. later so, goes to smoke outside a Clementine's right. apartment who immediately sees him standing there. And so you're like, okay, what's this? And they strike up a conversation about why he's there. She tells him she's not supposed to be in the, we find out that she's essentially, uh, she's doing sex work. Not supposed um, to be the, in the hotel area because it makes it too obvious that she's doing yeah, sex work. Yeah. And she'd be fired if the casino found out. Uh, and these are the men that she's supposed to quote unquote, not flirt with, but is expected to, um, yeah, quote, you'd be fired if you told them to leave you alone, uh, which is what Sid says to her, which I think is a unique kind of turn of phrase or like just the idea of like, if you did the right thing, you wouldn't be in this situation, but it's not you're not the one to blame. Like it, it evokes a lot of stuff of about how Sid feels about Clementine, which feels like a protective kind of fatherly spirit. It's he a notices- bit guilty of. She's mm. basically a Madonna whore damsel in distress I, right. in some ways. But, uh, you know, you could As psychoanalyze it that way if you want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, I mean, that that's the thing we're going to learn later is that it seems for some reason uh, Sid needs to save people. Um, right. Okay. Uh, he takes her to next- a diner. He, yeah, they eat at a diner, Late a different diner. diner but, she you says, know, you look at diners. me as a piece of shit now because you come, saw me coming out of that room. He says, no, I don't. Um, very PTA does very simple, straightforward, like flash forward to Magnolia. And he's saying, I just have so much love. I know I can give someone love, uh, or, or punch drunk love, you know, the line, right. I don't know. Cause I don't know what other people feel like, like very good, straightforward shit, even more right. stripped down than the Coen brothers. Not that I'm going right. to constantly compare to the Coen brothers, but you know, yeah. um, really Hemingway-esque where he's just like, yeah, simple words in a simple order that makes a powerful impact. Yeah. Uh, Clementine mentions that she doesn't like, she wants to make a point that she doesn't do anything she doesn't want to do, mm-hmm. but she does feel guilty about it because she immediately says right after, but don't tell John. Yeah. So she also cares about John. That's another, uh, you know, character detail we're learning. Uh, apparently, John found out a way to pay for his mother's funeral, which was a thing, you know, like um, a bill that came due in a previous scene. Uh, Sid says we worked it out. That's all. We kind of leave it at that. And remember, and just so it's fresh in everyone's mind, John said John owed or not owed, but wanted to spend six thousand dollars on the uh, on the funeral. So, like everyone's kind of aware of all the details we're aware of, uh, and then we get uh, the drop that Sydney has kids because Clementine asks about it, and an ex-wife, and they're all estranged and on the East Coast or somewhere else. We learn though later later they're on the East Coast. Um, I don't know. I haven't seen them in a while. That's sad. Yeah, yeah. Talk about straightforward and impactful. Um, 
And I just think interesting choice. That diner scene ends with, for no reason, a random guy in the background going, fuck this, I'm out of here and storming (laughs) off. And you don't know what that was in reference to. I think that's uh, probably, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson saying like, ah, Vegas, baby. So (laughs) PTA. But he's just like, you know, when you're in Vegas and someone's yelling at their girlfriend and you don't know what it was about. Yeah. 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 And they're both like, this is fucking weird. But I also think it's alluding to sudden violence, which can sure just happen. So they Um, go to Sid's room, hotel room, like an ensuite thing. Um, He says, I'm going to go get, I love this maneuver. He says, I'm going to go get a robe and some shorts. And she sits there like tugging on her lips and tugging on her stockings. And she's thinking what we're thinking. Does he mean he's going to come back in a robe and shorts and it's time to fuck? Right. Like, and he, and he comes back and he has stuff for her to wear. And he means, here's comfortable shit. You can sleep in John's room. Uh, I'm an old man. I need to protect this woman yeah. is the sentiment as opposed to I'm going to fuck. This and she's woman. like, you don't want to fuck me. And he's like, no. And she's like, now you, now you look at me like a piece of shit. And he's like, nope, I still don't. And she's like, all right. But I love that that is a very resonant self-loathing thing where you're like daring mm-hmm. people like, Okay, now you think I'm a piece of shit. No? How about now? I'll do a worse thing. Now you got to admit I'm a piece of shit. Yeah. Um, but he's, no, see, he's going to stubbornly save her. <laughs> we also start to see similarities between uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's character and John C. Riley's character because they start to repeat themselves a lot. Like, they keep, like, when they're struggling, they keep coming back to the same thing. It, like, it's a new point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something they both do. And I think it's also kind of hinting at. Like, I truly want, I truly think that Paul Thomas Anderson is trying to present them as like simple, like they're not long for the world in a way so that Sid can kind of have his position as a father figure. They're the opposite of street smart. Yeah, exactly. Whereas like Jimmy and Sid are of a different world. Right. It is. It's that classic story of. I'm already tainted and hard, but I'll use that to save someone I care about and keep them pure as long as I can. Um, But he does have special, but it's Sydney's thing is he's an old man. He has special rules and like peculiarities. So I think it's notable. He comes in the next morning, brings coffee into the room and he finds John telling Clem the matches story. Speaking of repeating Mm yourself and you quickly sense that he doesn't care if they're, Because there's some question, I think, in the audience's mind, intentionally so, of like, is Sid protective of her in a way where he doesn't want anyone fucking her? You know, like, does he Mm -hmm. want John to stay away from her? And then you slowly, I think, get the feeling through this scene that, no, he actually is, like, pairing them up. He wants them to be together, and he is stepping aside. And you, Mm -hmm. again, at least if you're me, are constantly thinking, why? What is his deal? Why does Sid care about these people? (laughs) And um, so he tells him to take some money and go to the mall. And he tells John, treat her nicely, buy her some stuff. He basically gives them instructions on how to go have a cute date. And he's like, go have a cute date. (laughs) And he's not like saying, do this. Like he, he is very stern in the way of like, Philip Baker Hall talking to you is like your expectation is like father time is talking to me, yeah. but like, he's like, I don't know. Like, what do you want to do? I want to get like, clothes, I, I, I need to go back to get clothes, like my apartment to get clothes. She's like, you know what? Buy new clothes. Here's some money, you know? And then like John C. Riley is like, I have money. You know, he's like, yeah, yeah. Oh, of course, of course. You know, like he's, he's try he's clearly, there's an awkwardness because he's the third person in this relationship. Yeah. But I, you get the feeling that 
the two of them are kind of bumbling and they may figure it out eventually, but it wouldn't be as picturesque as Sid would want. And I think that's an important distinction to make. Um, Oh yeah. Life is not as pretty as Sid wants to make it. Yeah. Sid is pretty damaged. And so he's trying to make a storybook. Um, and that's, you know, a, what we might call a flaw. And interestingly, Um, he's willing to accept almost delusionally that he did it. He's willing to be mm-hmm. like, it all, look at it. It's so beautiful when you're right. like, I guess it's not like the love story to end all love stories or anything, you know? Right. And, uh, but it's good enough for Sid to get these two random kids together. And um, I love, there's kind of comedic mm-hmm. beat at the end of this where, uh, she asks about like, what's the TV for? Cause there's like a, he clearly brought his own TV, uh, John. And uh, he then explains that he's scamming the motel for free cable, which is essentially like I take the wire from the wall and I put and it, I in jam the TV. it into this machine so that I can bypass the thing. Yeah. And then I you have to plug that into a TV and theirs don't work because they know of the scam. So if I bring my own TV, uh, I can just do it fine. So it's like not that complex of a scam, but you see how Sid has influenced like they're small stakes scams. They're little tiny things that well, like he's make your just life a little, a little Sid bit better. Clone now, his yeah. lifestyle is Sid taught him his lifestyle, and they're yeah. at and they're at the intelligence of John. You know, they're like simplistic little schemes. Um, but uh, you can still tell that Sid's very sentimental because, like, he's protective of certain aspects. Like uh, John goes, "All right, Captain," and he goes, "Captain." That is a nickname Clementine has given me. That is not for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he talks to him like a child. He does talk um, to him like very prescriptive. So he goes and grabs breakfast at the diner again. We see him in the diner a lot. Literally not a word is spoken. He just eats breakfast. Um, then we cut to the casino floor and he is pulled back to the craps table and uh, meets Philip Seymour Hoffman. In a scene that he apparently improvised, according to Philip Baker Hall in interviews. And man, if you don't watch this movie and you just listen to the podcast, God bless you. But at least go on YouTube and watch the Philip Hoffman scene at the craps table. There's one scene. It's only one, but it's just like a whirlwind. You know what I mean, old timer? I think you do. I just said fuck you to the man, you know? I mean, have some fun, old timer, you know? Fun, fun. All right, shakalaka do, shaka doobly do. I'm going to light the cigarette, old timer. Here what you go. going to do? <laughs> you know, just laughing for no reason. Yeah. Just like clearly the, on. He's like the Joker. It's amazing well, performance. What the fuck? It, oh, man, you play that game, don't I'm you? Pretty oh, sure. shit. <laughs> Like, uh, I know, like knowing a little bit from just interviews and such between Philip Seymour Hoffman and Paul Thomas Anderson's relationship, I'm pretty sure the note and direction was like, okay, so Philip, just the most cocaine, (laughs) just, just all the cocaine in you right now. And the the only interesting turn for him is at first he just calls him old timer over and over. And then once he bets $2,000 on the hard eight, he starts calling him big time instead of old timer. Right, yeah. So it's like he respects that he's going to lose a bunch of money. Right. And indeed, which is something he rolls, gamblers do. He rolls an easy eight, uh, which if you don't know how craps works, he he loses the money. That's not good enough. <laughs> yeah. The hard I, eight. I don't understand craps, but I like a soft eight, like a 
like a, a six soft eight so one, one or maybe six a and a two five or a three and a, three. and a five yeah, yeah 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 exactly versus a hard eight which is a four and a four yeah yeah so that's has to, that's why you gotta be a metaphor 44 44 yeah we'll we'll talk we'll talk about that's that later pedagogy. it's gotta be a meta yeah but he rolls a soft eight a five three we get a great shot where the croupier leans into the foreground and like obscures mm. Philip Baker Hall's face as Philip Baker Hall walks away. It's like a good melt in the, to the crowd shot. Right. Um, then suddenly Sid gets a call in the middle of the night. Uh, he goes, okay. Like you don't hear the other end of it. He goes, okay, John. Okay. Well, I guess I'll come over. <laughs> and then it cuts to this long follow shot, very the steady cam reminiscent of the shots we've been describing as like the linchpin shots of this film. Long steady cam shot up the spiral staircase of this outdoor strip mall or a uh, strip motel. Uh, you know what I mean? Like the staircase is outside. And then the motel rooms obviously are inside he knocks on a door and john is like is everything cool out there are you gonna be cool you gotta promise not to flip out are you cool and finally he's like open the goddamn door john and he opens the door and there is a dude in a puddle of blood handcuffed to the bed and clem and john are in there and this is the midpoint so i i do think it's interesting that at the midpoint we get a classic just the classic maneuver of stakes are now a whole new ballpark, right? We right. we we settled into a routine where everything seemed fine, so we got to raise the stakes. A PTA knows how to movie, um, mm. and we see. I will admit that it doesn't come out of the. I don't know. I don't know what I want to mention. We'll we'll talk about this in general more, but I just want to say a note of. I think everything you just said is correct. However. Uh, midpoint. I think there's something that he does a lot, which is just random events of happening, Deus Ex Machina kind of stuff. This one uh, does feel Deus Ex. It does feel it's very not, much it's like not out of like order. It's just that he surprises you with just like life does. He, I think he. That's what it, why he does it. I think he just says, and then this shit happened to him. One day you and get a phone call, one and day. they say your yeah. husband has fatal cancer or whatever. Which yeah, like shit just happens. <laughs> explored probably the most in Magnolia. But anyway, let's continue. By the way, we're like fifty three minutes oh, into this podcast. But you're yeah. right. I got the same feeling that I was like, oh, this is like, and then this happened. Like, yeah, fuck exactly. you. <laughs> yeah. Right, um, right. So, and uh, probably the most effective use of the, of putting important stuff off screen is we see Sid see the body before we see the body. And uh, yep. we see off his screen. reaction for a long time before we see yeah. the body, which is great. It, very effective. What very is this, effective. John? John, what is this? Who is this man? <laughs> and like, yeah. you you don't see the man. You're like, so show you're, me the man. Show me the man. It's a, <laughs> what works about it. What's so effective if you're an aspiring filmmaker, like learn this trick and steal it, is he's, is PTA has set up a visual system where you, you want to know the answer inherently, right? He, you are so dialed into his dialogue because you're looking for clues. You're like, what is he going to, what's it going to cut to and reveal? So he's like, who is this man? You're like, Oh, okay. So it's a man. And, uh, it's just by the nature of the setup of the situation. I love that, Mm -hmm. that you're like, Mm -hmm. you have to be engaged. There's no, there's no choice, but to want to know what's going to happen. And also, you know, John C. Riley, he's such a puppy dog in this film yeah. you really care for him you know something horrible is on the other side of that camera right and you just go oh like because you're so character character driven into it 
you know, obviously you want to see what, what has happened to John or what John has done. And then uh, there's a long doorway dolly into Sid's face close up and he says, well, this is a very fucked up situation here. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. It turns out that it's a John, meaning not to, con- you know, um, uh, a sex work- worker's client. It's a client yeah. of Gwyneth's who uh, refused to pay and hit her. And then John flipped out, beat him unconscious, cuffed him to the thing and is like, uh, he's a hostage. He can't go until he pays us the $300. And of course, Sid is like, why the fuck are you doing this? Why are you throwing this all away? We have $300. You have $300. And mm-hmm. you can tell that it's because she's his princess now, right? He wants to, right. this guy hit her. This guy's not paying her. He doesn't care that uh, she fucked another man. Like he loves her. In fact, he reveals they got a Vegas wedding that afternoon. They're married now. He's like, right. she's my wife. And, uh, he's like, he can't hit her. He can't take her money. I got to yeah. do the right thing. They, the timeline is they went to the mall. They mm-hmm. had sex. They got married. Then they went to a casino. And while at the casino, Clementine started f- f- like basically started sex work again. Yeah. And, uh, John, we don't know how John feels about that quite yet. Uh, and we don't know how Clementine feels about that yet. But we do know that Clementine refuses to leave the room without the money. Uh, right. and, and that John yeah. has very stupidly called the man's wife because he somehow got her number by calling the casino and knowing the guy yeah, and shit. Jesus. And called his wife at home and said, your husband just fucked a prostitute and is unwilling to pay. Mm-hmm. And he's a hostage. You bring the money. And yeah. Sydney's like, she's called the police, John. Do you understand that? <laughs> she's obviously called the police. Yeah. And They're he's like, she idiots. might not have. She might not have. <laughs> They're just the biggest idiots. Like, uh, yeah. And th- like they demand that I'm like, like Sid is, he's just like, well, then the police are probably involved. And they're like surprised by this. Like it's. It's pretty simple stuff, or it's not surprise. It's just they hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Yet they were like, "Really? Like you think? Uh, like yet? Yeah, that's really quick. I thought we had like some time. I think is what's going on in their brain. Uh, but yeah, John has said that he told the wife that if they're not paid, they will kill the man. And he's like, uh, "Well, then obviously she's going to call the cops or something. Like she's not going to just not react." And Sid kind of has this teacher syndrome that, you know, may be out of place, but whatever. Like, this is just what the story is. I mean, he's white knight. Yeah. Yeah, he's white knight. And and he he's just like tells Clementine how stupid and John how stupid they are. And Clementine kind of throws back like, we'll see how stupid I am when I get the money. And uh, we also learn at some point. Yeah. Uh, like the man, or rather, the man wakes up like right at that Horrifying. moment. Like, yeah, just like he er- suddenly wakes up and he's handcuffed. So John walks over and hits him like three or four times, just knocks him out again, beats him um, unconscious again in a way that yeah. is realistically difficult. Like, beats him for a little bit to get him yeah. unconscious again with the butt of the gun, and it's pretty mm-hmm. rough. Yeah, and John doesn't want to leave Clementine. Is what we and Clementine find doesn't out. want to leave the room, and, and finally Sid Clementine blames her in this in this scene. He blames her for the whole situation. He's like, "Why did you start doing sex work?" Like, there's that right. setup. This is crazy. Uh, yeah, it gets really out of hand. Well, she Sid says, "I don't know if I can help you too," and he she says, "Then why don't you just get the fuck out of here?" And he goes, "Hey, hey." I did not get you into this situation. Do you understand? So you humble yourself. You humble yourself. (laughs) And then uh, he like interrogates her and says, don't look at him. Look at me. 
uh john's like don't doctor her that way and he's like shut the fuck up you idiot and he goes here's what's gonna happen we're all gonna get out of here and uh john's like what can i do sid i love her fuck i fucked up uh and then the real surprising part is clem says i want my money he fucked me now he's gonna pay me which i really like because you get the feeling that it's not about it's about dignity, right? It's about being right. treated with respect. Yes. It's not the money at all. It's that mm-hmm. I didn't do this for pleasure. I did it for the fucking money. That's the fucking deal. Give me the fucking mm-hmm. money. Um, mm-hmm. And John says, so you want to be separated from your marriage from me? I love you. Right. She says, I don't care. And he says, well, fuck you then, you stupid fucking whore, and hits her in the face, which he is hits really her fucked And immediately up. says, yeah. he's sorry. Like, and it, says, like, I'm so sorry. Oh, my God. I can't believe I did that. It's poor fucking stupid John. But it's stupid, like, stupid it's John. interesting that later... Sid will be watching their wedding tape as if like, I did it. I got those two crazy kids together. Yeah. It's all going to be okay. And it's like, right. Sid is willing to overlook some of life's darkness and just be like, well, what are you going to do? Right. Shit happens. You deal yeah, with it. Everyone is immensely flawed and they're trying to have happiness. And it's just like, Sid feels like he's holding it all together. Like everything's going to explode. And he's like the man who's wrapped his body around the bomb. Yeah. That's how he feels. He is, you know, everyone feels that they're like great, you know, but the reality is very different. Yeah. So he says, my darling Clementine, look at me. Do you love John? He slapped my face, but do you love him? Yes. Well, you've got that then. You love him and he loves you and you're not going to ruin it on this bullshit. And I'll say two things. I totally get what PTA is going for. And it's what we just talked about, that he's overlooking flaws because you have to because everyone's flawed. But on the other hand, it is very white nighty and like... I don't care that he just domestically abused you. You love him, right? Look at me. It's absolutely It's like it's gaslighty if it were real life. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the point of it is to say, like, to show all the, like, I don't think we're supposed to see, I hope we're not supposed to see Sid as someone that, I think he's, he's fucking with you. He's, he's making you think that you're supposed to like this guy. And then he, he starts to tear off the, like, like wallpaper and like say like, ah, this shit is actually just kind of shitty. He's just, and then he's going to do something later that is just like, Oh, this guy is not, never was a hero of any kind. Yeah. Um, you just maybe thought he was, but like, not really. He's always just kind of been weird and, uh, adversarial in some ways and mostly just like commanding, uh, like he's a general. Um, but it comes out of this weird feeling of like, sympathy yeah. uh that's and at all. the last second they're like sid's like okay let's get the fuck out of here then the telephone rings they don't answer it but of course sid is very upset and is like who knows you're here who knows you're here and they're mm-hmm. like no one and clem's like well jimmy knows and john's like well jimmy knows but that doesn't matter and he's like all right let's just get the fuck out of here we'll talk about it later we'll talk about it later then the guy wakes up again so sid beats him unconscious this time and mm-hmm. says now let's go and we get this long matching steadicam shot that goes backwards down the spiral staircase which i actually was really impressed Very by impressed <laughs> yeah. how how much this film Low budget gritty the bo- the filmmaking is on this that was a spectacular move it is hard to rig a steady cam backing up downstairs just operation alone yeah it's just like it's walking backward is tough but it looks great and it turns into a follow shot of john who then gets in his car and then it pulls out and becomes a two shot of both cars peeling out it's a really cool shot yeah. um then uh 
uh, Clem says, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed. Oh my God. I feel like I might piss my pants. I have two cats. Will you feed them while I'm gone? <laughs> Which is a good block of text. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically they make, they make wrap up, you know, like here's some money. Here's where you're going. They you're on a honeymoon because you did get married. So yeah. Yeah. Um, key lines. Sid says to John, I'll get you money as you need it. You understand? As much as mm. I have, as much as you'll need. Do you understand? I will give you as much money as I have. <laughs> Which is like, yeah, he's a nice ass guy. I guess, yeah. So okay. Apparently, as far as we know. It's because they're old friends now. Because yep, earlier he said, he's like, I can't give you $6,000. That's but true. But now he's going to give him everything he has, apparently. That's what yeah. he says to them right now. Um, he says, go to Niagara Falls for your fake honeymoon and lay low there. John says, I don't want to go to Niagara Falls. I already been in there <laughs> and he goes so go good. there and he goes fine okay <laughs> uh, no my favorite part of the whole sequence is that when the ideas are when he skins like all right where do would you want to go for on your uh, honeymoon because he's trying to be urgent about it but also like what do you guys want to do this is yeah. gonna actually be a great honeymoon you yeah. know like and uh fucking john c Riley's first answer is vegas <laughs> and he goes you can't fucking like, go to vegas you can't fucking, that's like the one place you can't go yeah you literally like that is just a few miles down the road or whatever. It's such a simple John C. Riley, like, oh, I'd love to go to Vegas. Also, it's the same thing as Reno, basically. It's yeah. just a great joke. Um, uh, he, they they yeah. go their separate ways, John and Clementine on their quote unquote honeymoon. Sid tosses the handcuffs and the gun into a storm drain. Uh, mm-hmm. The gun, by the way, John revealed he borrowed from Jimmy. Um, and Jim, so Jimmy at some point was at the hotel, um, mm-hmm. but wasn't there by the time Sid got there. Then uh, you, you get on them, the road, them driving on their scene. honeymoon, and yeah. she says, "I won't fuck up again, John. I mm-hmm. really won't. I promise you." It's kind of implied that, like, which again, I think you could argue that this is naive and problematic in a bunch of ways, but it's implied that, like, she's scared because this love is real and. You know, for the first time, she has a relationship that could work. So she freaked out and reverted to her sex work just to test the boundaries. But now that they made it through this, they're going to work for a while, at least. Or it's some hope is implied, I felt, in the sequence. Yeah, um, I think that the character is overly simplistic uh, for this reason. Like design sense is I think that PTA is avoiding this kind of conversation by doing this, by making them simple, for example. Now that's already doubling down on a uh, trope about like people who do sex work are dumb. You know, like there's a, there's people who gamble are dumb for the most part. Mm -hmm. Like he's playing off stereotypes in a very like, okay, uh, exactly. What are you saying? PTA, you know? Um, And I don't, I think he wants to be, kind of snake-like about this. Uh, and usually that, you know, proof is in the pudding on that. We want to give us a big reveal here? Uh, Jimmy. Well, there's a few. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I just want to uh, point out just to nail it into the coffin. Uh, back in Reno, we see a sequence where Sid seems business as usual. It's like the next day. And he's watching a wedding video of Clem and John, which I think is so very sappy. Like, but also, how did he get that? Maybe. Oh, we saw him give it. We saw Clem give it to him when she asked him to feed the cats. That's right. She goes, and I want you to have this. She has. It's just a throwaway line. Yeah. It's just speaking of packages, though. uh, Sid gets a letter 
uh, just from a person. uh, And we don't know who it is, which is very, you know, uh, to be expected from Paul Thomas Anderson. He kind of leads with the mystery. Um, And then we kind of immediately answer that mystery. So when we see that Sid then goes and later that night is in his like car, uh, we see some flashes of light and we realize that it's Jimmy's car. And, uh, Sid kind of walks over to Jimmy's car. Jimmy, what's what's Jimmy's deal? Well, he demands that Sid put out his cigarette, which Sid does not. Jimmy then asks for a cigarette, which I thought was very funny. I want you to put Uh, out your goddamn cigarette. Well, I'm not going to put it out. mm -hmm. Okay, then can I have one then? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's a good. And I think it's it's what that's there for is it's a charming little moment between two great actors. And also, story-wise, it reinforces that they just never can get along. They just don't ever get along. There's no way it's going to work. So, Jimmy does throw him some niceties. He says, "You, Sid, you dealt with that like whole hostage crisis really well." Uh, And he that when he was walking around doing his surveying, he saw the hostage, the man, the next day walking around like nothing had happened. Uh, Sid keeps asking if Jimmy thinks that they called the cops. Jimmy seems pretty confident that the couple won't do anything due to public embarrassment. Although he's pretty sure that their like, you know, relationship is fucked, but that doesn't matter. We don't care about them. Jimmy (laughs) also mentions Niagara Falls specifically when they talk, when the conversation moves to Clem and John about Clem and John, which means that at some point Jimmy talked to them before they left. Uh, He also mentions that. uh, And here's the big one. um, He's from back East and he knows some things about Atlantic City. And then he more or less implies that Sydney did something in Atlantic City. And of course, like by impl- by implying it, just even mentioning the words Atlantic City, uh, Sid kind of freaks out and gets out of the car. And then it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, we know what we're talking about. It's basically all let loose. We learn that Sydney killed John's father in Atlantic City. So it's very Samuel L. Jackson. He gets out of the car and yeah. he goes, cause they've been dancing around it and he gets out of the car and he goes, ah, oh, come on, man. You shot his father in the face. And you're like, yeah. well, there it is. That that's pretty straightforward. There it is. <laughs> there it is. And it's done. And I think he's out of focus at the, at yeah. that point. Cause we're in focus with Sid, if I remember correctly. And then Sid uh, doesn't react. He gets mm-hmm. in his car and tries to drive away, but he drops his keys. So he's fumbling. It's tense. He's, yeah. And in this amount of time, uh, Jimmy walks over and basically blackmail Sid for $10,000 or he'll tell John about the killing. Um, and when uh, Sidney finally gets in his car. Uh, and this is 96. Does this predate Pulp Fiction? Uh, I thought Pulp Fiction. I think Pulp Fiction's uh, also 96, 97, isn't it? 4, 94, 94. 94. Okay. Well, it has okay. a very Pulp Fiction-esque run, which is just, it very much you so. want to call me a tough guy? Well, I am a tough guy. This gun in your face is pretty tough, isn't it? You don't know yeah, me. I will put bullets in you for it. <laughs> and then I also <laughs> like the line, because uh, he smashed the glass window, and then he gets in the driver's seat, and he goes, move over. Sit in this glass. It's yours. <laughs> I like that yeah. line. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. It's uh, kind of, it's kind of the best scene to be yeah, honest. Yeah, Jimmy is aggressively are, blackmailing Sid. Yeah, yeah. It's such like all, the acting is just 
can't over like the little nuances of the things they do is just a very very satisfying you used to be a hard ass and you took out his dad so what you think you can just walk through life without being punished for it uh yeah so he takes him he says my money's in the bank though we got to go to the bank and he goes no we'll go to my hotel room and i'll keep you at gunpoint until the bank opens in the morning and mm-hmm. uh, they sort of sit and chat while they're doing that. Uh, he says yeah. to Sid, you can look at me sideways all you want. You probably think I'm some kind of asshole, but I'm not a killer like you, uh, which mm-hmm. I do think is a very interesting point. That he's like, you think you're better than me? You treat me like lower class, like dumb guy. But uh, right. I've never murdered anyone, you know, so right. fuck you, dude. <laughs> and he says the most damning thing. Bottom line, mm-hmm. Sydney. No matter how hard you try, you are not his father. Which is like, mm. Mm. and then Sydney immediately is like, you know what? Let's just resolve this now. I have the money here. It's not in the bank. I will. I lied. I have the money here in this moment. Is what he says. He gives up the money. He admits the crime. He says, Jimmy, I'm asking you with my sincerity, like all my. He says, like, there's nothing I can do. You have all the power in the situation. We're done here. But like. I know John and I love him like he was my own child. Please don't tell him and please don't kill me. I don't want to die. Let's here you go. Here's the money. Like he completely capitulates in his own weird Sydney way. He begs for his life. I mean, it's no John Turturro and Miller's Crossing. It's very low emotion, but he says, I don't want to die. Please don't kill me. Basically says it like that. And they exchange the money and a maneuver I love. Jimmy leans in to whisper something to him and then decides, fuck it, I'll never see this guy again and just walks away. Like, I don't, it's the literal visualization of we have nothing left to say to each other. I like that. Yes, yes. Um, And so you get the strong impression Jimmy's done. Jimmy, Jimmy is satisfied. Yep. He's going to never mention this again. He basically mm-hmm. takes the money and he goes to gamble. And uh, he gambles on a hard eight and wins, which is we got to dig into it pedagogy. Right. And he uh, it's very Anton Chigurh. Yeah, he he bets 2K on the hard eight and loses and then pushes it and wins. Yeah. But regardless, at the same time, it's intercut with uh, Sid breaking into his house, finding his guns. So it'll look like he killed himself or the gun won't be easily traceable and sitting in front of the front door and just waiting for him to come home. Very simple, straightforward ambush like a Mike Ehrman trout might set up. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Jimmy comes home with a woman. He mm-hmm. shoots Jimmy dead. He puts the gun on the woman and says, get the fuck out of here. She runs away. And, mm-hmm. uh, what's the end end? Sid like gets in his car and drives away. That's it. He just brutally murders Jimmy, which he didn't uh, need to do. Yeah, like luckily Jimmy has the six thousand dollars, uh, or what you know, like on him. But Sid goes to the diner that where he first convenient. met John. Uh, <laughs> is the the final scene? The bookend is that it's we go back to where we started. We're at the diner, uh, in a you know, which is in a not Reno, not L.A. or not Las Vegas, but uh, some random town on the in, way to Vegas, in yeah. Nevada. Uh, and he sits at literally the same table, and he notices he has blood on his cuff. And he covers it with his coat. And then that's Which is, the end I of the forgot, film. of course, a postcard of the movie, right? Sydney hides the blood that he's responsible for. That's the I, story. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that is the story. But it's like, yeah, in terms of the beginning, it's saving someone or it's introducing someone to that he wants to save. And the end uh, beat is 
uh, now I'm alone and I live with the cost. Killed. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah. It ends with an Amy Mann song, which is going to set up a, you know, longtime collaboration for PTA. Mm-hmm. He loves mm-hmm. him some Amy Mann. And that gets us right into. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, here we are in pedagogy, where we basically talk about the broader themes, what we thought of the movie. Um, so Abe, we, we dug into it and we've really digested it, but like, I like doing it in this order, by the way, man, I love, Mm -hmm. I love the three spectra. Now we ask, what'd you think of this? Was it impactful? Did it hit you? What insights did it give you into PTA? Yeah, I have a lot of questions, but I also want to kind of unpack them, uh, before, you know what, just because it's interesting and with, let's start with mystery first. I don't want to answer what I think about it until kind of the end of the sequence. I want to more start asking questions and just feeling out the story with you, which is what it like, let me ask this question first. What do you think of the mean of calling it hard eight is? Well, I know from behind the scenes that his first choice was to call it Sydney. Hard, but right. Hard Eight obviously was resonant to him because here's what it's we, resonant leak. Yeah, let's. I want to talk about the, it for sure because I don't know that I have a concrete answer, but I do know how craps works for the most part, mm. and I understand that what it really comes down to, f- as far as this film is concerned, is that there's a bet that is a very difficult bet to make that Sydney will occasionally make when he's in the mood, and his mm. whole life that bet never pays off. Even in the film, he never gets a Hard Eight. But Jimmy does, right. um, but not before failing once and then trying again, and then he gets it. Um, right. Okay. What does this so, mean? I, I'm asking yeah, like too. I don't simple. fully know. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing that I uh, noticed mm-hmm. is that like, when you really just think of like what a hard eight is relative to its game, like its position, like what it effectively is, it's, um, it's betting in on a hard eight pays off more. Because of the, there's fewer combinations, you know, it's, it's taking a high risk, right? Pays off more because the risk is higher. Yeah. Yeah. The, so I think it's the idea of betting in on a hard eight, uh, and relative to this movie is we all obviously are making choices and risks in our own life. So he's doing a little parallel there. Um, and it kind of is, uh, try, I think it's Paul Thomas Anderson telling us like for a lot of people, especially in Vegas, uh, it just doesn't, it's just it, that that's the whole thing with gambling. You, the house always wins. And I don't think he's out there to make a anti propaganda for gambling movie. I think he's just saying it's true of life. And this is what I think we mentioned when we talked about the nihilistic uh, approach. To and all this he stuff. is obsessed with gambling games of chance and Vegas vibes generally. And I think it's because what's more nihilistic than chance. It's such a handy symbol. Right. And that informs the camera. Uh, like it informs, uh, it informs so much for Paul Thomas Anderson and a lot of his media because what he's doing is for the most part trying to present the world as a kind of not in a cruel way, but just in a uh, nature is this there's this apathy aspect. There's this kind of like, why'd that happen? That's really silly and circumstantial. And we may even see it as poetic, but essentially it's just bodies moving. He really does perceive the world, I think, as a bunch of atoms slamming into each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's uh, talking about betting, especially the role of a dice is kind of with that philosophy. It's kind of trying to say the probability statistics is really what governs the universe. Same reason Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are flipping those coins. It's a great handy metaphor. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that, uh, so 
positioning it in those terms, a hard eight is, you know, high risk, high reward, but you never win. Uh, and I think that, uh, to subvert that, that's why Samuel L. Jackson, who ultimately does win and then gets shot and killed. Like the story just keeps going on. And we also kind of see this idea of like the past will always live with you. Right. So yes, you won at the craps table, but you shot later that night. Yes. Uh, you got married. Uh, but you know, like you maybe well, isn't the best relationship. Punch her in the face. So like, and you when's guys, that gonna yeah, come up again? Yeah, when that's yeah. coming up again. Yeah, exactly. And like, there's just everything paying itself forward in this kind of cruel way because these people are inherently flawed. Everyone in this movie is super insecure about who they are, at least subliminally in terms of like a Sid who's very confident walks around and struts around, uh, you know, and we kind of start to build this respect for him in his space because he is kind of a captain in this space, but also he is so like, he's false to everyone he meets. He's a murderer. Um, but he's trying to like set, save him, save himself right. by saving other people, uh, which kind of gets into this strangely Christ-like aspect of Sid. Like he, he, his penance seems to be, or I think it's his punishment to himself, seems to be that he gives to those he needs. He gives a sacrament of coffee and cigarettes. He tries to connect two people in this idea of love uh, at one, at the first se- in the first sequence, we meet with John and Sid in the diner. It's, uh, John says or asks of uh, Sid, like, "Why are you doing this? What are you, Saint Francis or something?" And no, of I'm course, not Saint Francis. No, I'm not Saint Francis. Uh, John, which may be a nod to this, uh, like. St. Francis was known for sacrament and living as closely to Jesus as possible. Obviously he's a saint. Um, it's the idea behind St. Francis is, you know, a vi- one very specific in at least Catholicism to uh, sacrament. It's that's what he's pretty well known for. Um, and that's, I think there's something to be said about that, which I think brings me back to probably the most to me, the most resonant, sentence of this because it bottles up the entire system. It's the system that Clem is in. It's the system that Jimmy's in. It's this, you know, system with Sid and John, which is never ignore a man's courtesy because a man's courtesy always means something. And that meaning usually carries with it the weight of everything that happened in the past and whatever fucking, you know, uh, baggage they have, but also informing your future because now you're on this road, this road, you can't ignore it. You have, because that's just how the world works. Life just throws things at you. And sometimes it's courtesy. It's not good or bad. It's just quote unquote courtesy. Um, I don't know. So that's kind of like my rant, I guess, on what I think this all means to PTA. And I hope I explained that pretty fairly well. Nice. I agree. Uh-huh. And you gave me time to eat a rice ciancini, rice ciancini <laughs> yeah, that's cookie. The, yeah. Uh, Almond I think cookie. That, yeah. Mm. What do you got? What do you got in this section? Well, we also didn't mention the line. I need to tell you something important. I love you like you were my own son. Thank you, Sid. I love you too. Yeah, that's true. Um, John C. Riley, good, teary, cry. Yeah, really good. He, ah, really good. (laughs) Just really good in that phone booth. Yeah. Mm. Um, Yeah. uh, Like I say, I ultimately think, 
or like I implied. I ultimately think some of this stuff rubs me the wrong way where I'm like, I get it. But but the story at the end of the day isn't that interesting to me, which is like, right. What if an old white guy made good on something bad he did in the past? I'm like, yeah, I've heard that a lot. I've heard that one a lot. Um, but but it's yeah, it's exactly. well executed. And so many elements and movements of it are proto PTA. I'm so glad I watched it because it feels really like it's more so than wheels. more so than some artists like uh, Vonnegut, for example, felt fully formed. And then some of his later books feel more amateurish than his first book. You know, there's no like right. rhyme or reason. But whereas I, if you lined up all the PTA's movies randomly and I watched them all, I feel like I could identify that this is the first this one. This is the first one. It feels Much primordial. Like- much like in the Coen Brothers, Blood um, Simple also feels Blood primordial. Simple. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's primordial. Yeah, I think that that's the perfect word of it because it's rudimentary, it's blunt, and it doesn't nail all of the like. What are you trying to say, Paul Thomas Anderson? But it has moments of Coen shine Brothers? where you're like, yeah. the kid's got something though. Yeah, right. Yeah, as my film school teacher told me one time, you got a Louisville Slugger, but you don't know where to swing it. Uh, which really and then you fucking, fucked his wife, so it was like, yeah, that, "Hey, yeah, buddy, I fucked your wife." <laughs> yeah, Do I know really where to swing it, motherfucker? It cut me Do deep, I? man. It cut me deep because I had mm-hmm. like a uh, father-son relationship with that man. Uh, you know, like he was like, "I'm gonna take you in. You're one of the best ones." And I was like, "Ah, oh, daddy," <laughs> you know, like it does that to you. That's one of the things that I think uh, happened to Paul Thomas Anderson as well is that he probably had a mentor role. And that probably fucked him up a little bit. Yeah. That's just my two cents. I don't know. That's just me picking up on insecurities. We all got him. Yeah. It's great. Um, Yeah. I like the, he mentions impossible scenarios or once again, I think this is going to become like a running like thing that I talk about in all the podcasts about Paul Thomas Anderson, which is that he likes to swing these impossible scenarios at, at you, whether they're via story in this case, to me, it's more sequential. It comes from the actual narrative and the questions that the people who inhabit the narrative are asking, which is like the idea of flirting with men as a waitress. And yet the rules of the casino mean like, I can't tell you to flirt with them but if you don't basically and un- wink wink nod nod unsaid uh you you'll get fired mm-hmm. and also you're gonna get fired you have to do this thing for us that's what we're paying you to do and we reap the benefits you don't it's this weird messed up catch-22 that kind of governs the universe and creates these hilariously concocted um smash together hodgepodge version of like that's a unique thing to look at or that's a, like or that's a thought that is fucking weird you know like and i think that that's paul thomas anderson that's like mm. one of the things that makes him up uh sid loves john but won't sacrifice his own life for him uh because quote because you have asked me um that's another one you know it's like he there's this weird hypocrisy uh, maybe not hypocrisy oh, when he says i don't want to die he says uh i love yeah. john like he was my own child but i do not want to sacrifice my life for him i do not want to die yeah like that's right. very interesting yeah and so like it does seem that Paul Thomas Anderson seems occupied and I'm just going to kind of leave it. This is an open thing because I think this we'll will talk develop. about it much later. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think of several films, you know, there will be blood a lot. Uh, you know, there, there's sequences where that really speaks to 
and the Coen brothers do this too. Other nihilistic filmmakers do this too, where it's like, um, I think like the Jackie Treehorn in uh, Big Lebowski, where he, he rubs the pencil on the page and he's like, oh, what Jackie Treehorn was writing this whole time was just, a, he drew a man with a dick. Oh, he dude, thought he was taking you're underplaying notes. it. He drew a man with like a, a savage erection yeah. that could lift an empire. <laughs> yeah. Point is that he's just like, and then we just confronted with this, like the dude going like, what the fuck? You know, it's it, what the fuck? Coen brothers, yeah. they do it too. Um, and I think these impossible, impossible scenarios are kind of, honestly, they're kind of twee because he kind of is, it's like a cute way of doing it. But that's not this movie. This movie is a straight laced, like I'm just making a crime movie. Um, uh, but in the I Paul think there's Thomas something Anderson artsy way. to how Philip, ba- how stripped down and straightforward Philip mm-hmm. Baker Hall is and how flat his affect is. Yeah. It's not like Chris Nolan where everyone has the flat affect or a Kubrick, but it's, mm-hmm. Uh, it's as if just Philip Baker Hall exists in that universe. And then everyone else has the normal palette of emotions. Right. Right. And I wanted to mention it because I think when we come into next episode, we're going to be assessing how kind of Wes Anderson does the same thing in bottle rocket. Um, but yeah, um, we talked about that. We talked about that. I, I don't know. Uh, Oh, I noticed that something cool is that when he first thing he gets John to do is shave and get a new shirt when he arrives. Right. Mm-hmm. And when they arrive in the in the casino, like he's like, you got to look like this in yeah. order to pull the scam. Uh, basically, we cover or clean up our previous mess uh, and dot, dot, dot. They always follow us. You know, that's yeah. how it works. Oh, yeah. The last image of, of the scene is him covering up his bloody cuff, you know, right. for the same purpose. Oh, I got to be new. So I'll just. I'll just band-aid this and, 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 you know, put a band-aid on it and we'll, you know, we'll try again tomorrow. That's yeah. We don't get the impression that this won't catch up with them again, even, or, Mm -hmm. you know how some movies end you with the feeling like, and they got away clean. This doesn't even Mm -hmm. feel like that for all, you know, like John and Clem will run into more trouble later. It doesn't seem like anyone's in the clear. It just seems like stuff is continuing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's all I got. Yeah, that's all I got. I mean, I dispense most of my important insights during diegesis, which is fine by me. And right, we're about that- to hit the uh, length of the film itself. So we should probably try and make the podcast only a little longer than the movie itself. Yeah, when, yeah, we, can, right, when right. we can swing that. So let's move on into God, I miss Arrested Development. How do you do that? How do you do that? Which is just simple behind the scenes stuff. We talked about it a little bit, but the big takeaways being that um, for me, PTA wrote this, he says, in two weeks, which makes me depressed because we've been working on Furry Movie for five and a half years or something like that. Um, Raised $3 million uh, off of his short film, which also depresses me for other reasons, and Mm -hmm. uh, went and shot this thing. He had a two-hour cut, two-and-a-half-hour cut that they called Sydney. Um, The producers were worried that audiences would think the movie was about Australia, so they made him change it to Hard Eight and cut it down to 90 minutes. So, uh, producer, uh, by the way, is Robert Jones, yeah. which you might he, recognize from Kid Stays in the Picture. Nice. Uh, so it's like 
He's that he's old Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, but so this know, is far from PTA at the height of his powers. He had to compromise this significantly or, you know, play ball at least. Yeah. He's a, he's a fucking freshman yeah. filmmaker. And yeah, he made a short coffee and cigarettes in 1993. And in 1993, the Sundance film festival, he showed it and that caused them to invite uh, him to the Sundance Institute filmmaker lab. This is literally the same story as Ryan Coogler who literally, like I just, bring it up because I'm, I, I witnessed it from USC. Like he made a short called fig showed it. Uh, and then basically Sundance approached him and said, come to the Sundance Institute filmmaker lab where they kind of just workshop scenes and shoot kind of parts of movies. And then the idea is you get money and you shoot the thing yourself. Yeah. Uh, it's a conservatory basically. And so he literally shot sequences in this movie. They're not in the movie because he reshot everything, but like he literally covered it the same way. You can actually watch them. They're on the DVD. Um, yeah. Also, <clears throat> little known fact, there's technically an Anderson verse, uh, which I didn't, uh, in the sense that in this movie, Jimmy, Jimmy mentions, I know all the people in Atlantic City. I know your friends Floyd Gondoli and Jimmy the Gator. Mm. In Boogie Nights... Philip Baker Hall plays Floyd Gondoli and in uh, Magnolia, Philip Baker Hall plays a guy named Jimmy Gator. Yeah. Interesting. They kind of did random like word association. Weird connections world, that don't matter. Building. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just because, you know, you create a, you create a world. I guess you just want to, you just like, ah, who cares? I like that name. Yeah. Um, Jimmy you know. Gator. And this is how I know that the credits were a bit much up top. Because I thought the credits were a bit much, and then I learned this trivia, which I'm like, okay, see, I was right. PTA wanted the film to open with just the production company info, a P.T. Anderson picture, and the title, with no other credits. In order for this to happen legally, all members of cast and crew must agree to waive their main credit right. Producer Robert Jones did not agree, so the movie has full opening credits. <laughs> yeah, I honestly dude, think... One dude was like, I want credit. Credits are very strange because there's many different ways to do it. But like, I don't like that. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't like that P.T. Anderson wanted it to just be his film to yeah, start off. I agree. I understand. He could have made it. He can make many arguments about like, of well, wanting it to brevity. be clean. Yeah. Yeah. Brevity. I just want to jump into it. Like then figure out a way like. I don't know because you like sometimes you you have to legally do opening credits when you're on this level. You legally have to, and I think he wasn't used to that. Making shorts, you can kind of do what you want, and so he's probably coming from this world where he's like, I only like if it were up to me, I would just start an image and we watch the thing. And I hate it when they do like you know credits over picture. So I, I just wanted isolated and that's what he did. Um, but it's just like, I, it seems very arrogant that then turn around and say, but let's do one at least and make it me. Um, right. That's, that's the very, the, the snag is that it, he did want to include a PT Anderson picture, which is right, like, right. whatever. Or you could say, I mean, I guess he has the right, but then so yeah. does the producer. The producer did raise $3 million, which is 90% and, of the budget. So like that producer is equally responsible for the film existing. It, it also, uh, it also, I don't know these people. I n never met. I Robert don't know Jones, these people, but, uh, you know, <laughs> to me, to be honest, like my spidey sense tells me that it's probably an ego contest. You know, the producer's like, 
uh, I, by the way, uh, Paul doesn't want, you know, some person saying Paul doesn't want uh, anyone to have credits. That's how he wants it to be. Mm-hmm. Robert Jones is going to, no, I'm fucking Robert Jones. Yeah, exactly. I am this movie. I, I raised the money them. for the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, if you, uh, you, if you know anything about Robert Jones, that is kind of the world he, you want it was forged in, I guess, is a nice way of putting it. A Jones Forge. Uh, that's that's it for me, man. All right. Well, then I guess that was we're good. out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I I still like this. I like how we did diegesis this time. Hopefully, that was entertaining for you. Please come back next time when we're going to be talking about. We're going to switch to the other Anderson. Mm-hmm. Anderson. So that will be Weird Wes's Anderson. debut. Um, yes. Bottle Rocket. Yeah, and we'll kind of see how he it. approached this. Uh, because he's also, you know, a freshman feature yeah. filmmaker. Um, and similarly, had made a short that got him a bunch of attention and funded the movie. So we'll see yes. what the result yes. of that was. And we should also, in that episode, just a note for myself later, we should discuss how the money was gathered together for each of the filmmakers because I think that that is going to inform who these directors are kind of thing oh interesting yeah so there's they're not the same answer they have different styles of money gathering uh well I mean it's just like yeah we'll we'll talk about it next time tune in next time for that talk (laughs) for that talk yeah um that's all we got Mm -hmm. thanks for listening yeah thanks for the Listen, this has been a small beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The beans always have new ideas percolating. So make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash small beans. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash small beans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the small beans grow into huge giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you.